Hey, this is Tom, and before we get started, I wanted to share something pretty cool with you. I host my podcast on Buzzsprout, and Buzzsprout implemented a new feature called Fan Mail, which I want to try out. So what that means is if you go to the show notes for any episode, including the one you're about to listen to, there's a little link that says send a text message, and you can click that and just send a quick message, and that's pretty cool. Do not overthink this. It can just be a thought that you have. It can be as informal as a text message. You would send a friend. We could be friends, right? I'm super excited about this because it's always sort of tricky to figure out like how to communicate via podcasts that don't have traditional comment sections and things. Of course, there's always the regular email and the speak pipe link on HiMyNameIsTom.com. But if you want to send a quick message, you can just click the send a text link and send me some mail. Now I'm going to send you to the episode. Hello and welcome to season two, episode eight already of the Enthusiasm Project. My name's Tom, and today we're going to do something just a little bit different than what we've been doing over the past few weeks. So for you know the past few weeks, we've been diving into these sort of discussions about starting a business. Heather and I, it is the new, you know, it's the new year's 2020 is January, so we did officially file all of our LLC stuff to get that going. So we have like an official organization and now we need to like do stuff with that organization which is really really exciting but today i wanted to do the best i could to turn this into a two-way conversation because it's just sort of natural that by the very nature of the medium that it's it's you know i talk and you listen and you know it's really nice if that can go both ways from time to time because that's kind of the joy of doing anything that involves building a community and so yesterday on Twitter and Instagram, I put out a call for questions to answer for cues to A. And much to my surprise, I actually got some cues, which, you know, it still blows my mind <laughs> that there can be something where I can just say, like, I can just put that out there like, hey, I've got, que- or I've got you know, answers for any questions you might have, I want to do a podcast about it, and then, you know, over a couple hours, a nice little handful pile in, and then I can go through them. So I really want to thank everybody who participated in that. There's always the risk when you do something like that of zero response. And, you know, that's fine. But I'm really happy that that wasn't the case. So it's still, still, despite like getting emails and messages and things, like it doesn't compute that there can actually be people interested in anything I would want to make. And it's always just like humbling and gratifying. So I've got an assortment of questions from Instagram and Twitter and some YouTube comments and even one from one of my students in class today. So we'll kind of go through those. I'm really excited. I think um, I haven't really like, other than copying and pasting them into a doc, I haven't like looked at them. So I'm excited to go through and be able to explore. It's kind of like having a conversation because it's, you know, it's real-time thoughts and responses to things that people are wondering. And I think that that's really cool. So we will just jump straight into it. I apologize in advance if I butcher anybody's username. I'll do my best not to do that. So here's one from Instagram from Edwin DRG, Edwin Dr. G. And 
Edwin asked, how do you go about figuring out a topic? Landing on one, scripting a story about what you'll talk about? Do you prompter it or outline it? How do you remind yourself of the talking points as you're capturing yourself? So that that's an awesome question about the whole production process. And I'm it's perf- it's perfect timing. I'm glad he asked it because I've been wanting to put together a behind the scenes video because I've gotten kind of like a surprising number of comments and messages asking like how do you make your videos and do those things and I, I it never really stood out as anything special or unique to me but it's exciting that anyone's interested in that so I'm happy to show it so that should be in video form soon where I'll go into depth throughout the whole process but part of that video I'm going to explain that it really is that process and I, I break it down into three parts just like when I teach in my classes there's the pre-production production and post-production parts of of the project and so what I have learned, which is typically everybody's least favorite thing, is the more the more time you spend on pre-production, the better everything else goes. But unfortunately, sometimes pre-production can be the least fun part. It's all the planning. It's just, you know, the organizing, the figuring it out. Mine isn't isn't too crazy, but yeah. So when it comes to, there's kind of multiple parts to this question. So when it comes to figuring out a topic and then landing on one, at this point, it feels it's pretty natural because there's there's you know a niche which I've talked about on this podcast many times that I've been trying to dial my channel into so it's very easy if I have an idea to just immediately run it through the test of like does this in any way fit into that or does it not like would it be interesting to people who have watched my other videos or would it not if the answer is yes then then I can develop it a little bit more and so the second part of that like landing on one it kind of depends since I've been doing the strategy for uh, over half a year now of trying to schedule a couple videos in advance. What I've noticed with that is it's kind of fun to shuffle them around. So I'll, you know, like right now I have three videos scheduled out and I just yesterday switched two around for no real reason other than that. I feel like this week, just based on questions I've gotten and like, (laughs) I don't know, vibes in the air, the topic of that video just seems like it's more relevant than the topic of the other video. And, you know, sometimes you just sort of pay attention to that kind of stuff. But in general, you know, I just try to keep everything in line with what's what's made on the um, what's made on the channel, what's already there and what people probably would want more of and that I would want to actually make more of, which luckily the two seem to be aligning right now. And that's a good thing. But then Edwin also asked, how do you you know script a story about what you're talking about? And I think if you're somebody who makes any kind of like content or online, whatever, the idea of like story, story, story can kind of be beaten to death. But uh, as the former digital media pathway that I taught at was literally called digital storytelling. So it is something that's kind of important. And, And really like in terms of story, I usually try to think of it as the hook. And on my little notes, I always have a thing that's hook, which is like, why does anyone care about this? You know, anybody can do a quick review. Anyone can read tech specs. Anyone can just like show a product or a technique or whatever. So what's going to make someone who's watched one of my videos or someone who sees it for the first time actually care about this? And I usually try to structure that around uh, making it relatable in some way to somebody kind of like myself. I, I always just sort of imagine that like the person watching my videos is me you know, between six months and two years ago. So in terms of motivation, skill set, uh, you know, I, uh, 
I was going to say ideas, but sure, why not ideas? Uh, you know, like what they would like to accomplish, ideals maybe. I just sort of like try to make, because, you know, because I'm a couple steps ahead of me six months or a couple years ago. So I just sort of look back and go like, what did I need then? Would this be helpful? Yes or no. And then also, you know, would it be something that if I just randomly found it, would I be interested in it? And I can usually find some kind of hook there. You know, for example, the video that I most recently did was all about the Canon Rebel series, like Canon's least expensive series of cameras. And the fact that they're still really good, even though they're often underrated. And part of the reason I wanted to do that was because I know there are so many people who want to get started, but they feel like they need the best or they put that pressure on themselves of wanting to, to have the best, to need the best. And that's nice, but you don't always need it. And the Rebels are great. And more importantly, I know just anecdotally that there's so many people that just have those already lying around. It's not about, I need to go find the new camera or whatever. It's it's like it's already on the shelf, in the drawer, in the closet, or, you know, your friend or, you know, family member has one and you have access to one. And that means you can just get started right away. So I kind of wanted to show the power of that. Like, yes, have these goals to aspire to, but if you look around, you probably already have like a really capable tool. And that was sort of the hook I took with that video. And I just try to find that with anything, even if it's just like a gear review or a tutorial more than just the nuts and bolts, you know, what, what is the hook that would make it interesting? And so that goes into, do you use a prompter or outline it? The answer is yes <laughs> to both. Uh, the video that I just rescheduled for this upcoming week, which actually I'm recording this on Monday, so you'll hear this on the next Monday. <laughs> so this video actually would be the most recent video that came out when you're listening to this, is all about the power of a teleprompter. And I started using one a few months ago um, not for every video, but just for some videos. And so sometimes I will just use an outline, just a basic outline of the main points I want to hit. And that might literally just be a notebook on the desk while I'm recording. And I just kind of glance down. Oh, yeah, talk about this. Talk about that. And other times, if it's real specific, like if it's a review and I need to remember real specific numbers because I've gotten myself into trouble in the past for saying incorrect numbers or leaving things out, not on purpose, but just totally accidentally then the teleprompter is great because it can just, you know, go watch that video because it can just really keep you on track, keep you focused, and then reduce the post-production time a lot. But sometimes you want to have a more conversational approach and then so use the prompter about 50% of the time. And that's basically, those are the ways that I remind myself of the talking points as I'm capturing myself on camera. And yeah, so that's a great question. I'm going to go into more detail about those things in the... Uh, behind the scenes video that I'm making. So hopefully Edwin and anyone else who's interested in that will check that out. Should be done before the end of January. I am very excited about that. Up next, we're going to jump to Instagram. And the reason that I laugh is because the first question was from someone I think I've heard of, Heather Just Create. Hmm. And she's asking, when's the wedding? <laughs> Which is uh, obviously, she's talking about our wedding because we got engaged uh, last October. And the answer, I mean, like we have a date and everything. We have a date and a venue and the whole deal. But just, you know, for the sake of some semblance of privacy, we'll just say 2020. And uh, I can also say that just last week, we put down our first of like five deposits <laughs> for the venue and for all the, you know, the whole shebang that goes in with that. So there's like an it's like an actual thing that's not just on our calendar, but it's like on 
an event planner's calendar as well. So it makes it very concrete, which is super exciting. So 2020, because well, it's just a, such a cool, that's a cool year. I mean, that was literally like, obviously we wanted to get married soon. Like we were tired of not being married, but when it comes time to, to do it, we were just like, 2020 is really great. Like I love the idea of having that as our anniversary date. It's just a very cool sounding year saying this in January. So, you know, hopefully it doesn't become associated with something horrible that happens around the world and it's still a cool year, but I love the idea of 2020, you know, it's really a unique year, I guess. <laughs> so thank you, Heather, for supporting all of my work. You are on the other side of the wall as I'm saying this, I think playing Dr. Mario. So hi. <laughs> all right. Jumping back over to Instagram. Uh, oh, man, another one I'm not going to probably pronounce correctly. It looks like it says Miss Ledeck Photo, M-S-L-A-D-E-K Photo. Um, and they asked, how much time do you spend per week or month planning, creating, and editing your YouTube content? What's a typical production for a video look like? Perfect. So that kind of goes in line a little bit with the last question, but last time the previous question from Edwin was all about um, like the pre-production process, whereas you're sort of talking about the whole process or mainly it seems like focusing on actually that's the whole process planning creating editing that's pre and then production and then post so let's see typically on a regular work week you know i work monday through friday usually i will try to record a video one day after work and kind of start editing it sometimes that's not always possible and if that's not the case then definitely on the weekend film and then edit a video on the weekend, which takes up a lot of time. At this point, I mean, it depends on the video, of course, but if we take something like a typical tutorial or gear review that I do, it probably takes, I don't know, half hour to 40 minutes to film the talking head part where it's me talking. And then the B-roll footage is maybe another hour or so, depending on how wacky I want to get. And then it could be a little longer depending on if I need to go somewhere else. Like if it's a drone video, then we got to go somewhere to fly a drone. Or if it's it's a video that, you know, I want to do a lens comparison and take cameras out somewhere like into the world and that can take more time. But in general, I would say on average, um, two to three hours of filming and then editing always takes longer. Um, typically, maybe another three hours, three to four hours to edit. So I usually try to go like, I'm going to be I'm going to be so balanced and just like spread this out and I'll film a little bit on this day and a little bit more the next day and then I'll start editing and when the video's done, it's done. But usually it's like once once I get the footage in the computer, then I'm always like, well, I guess I could, you know, just put it on the timeline and then I'll just have all the footage there. And then once it's there, I'm like, well, I guess I could chop up the talking head part just so I don't have to deal with that. Well, now that I did that, I might as well throw in a little bit of B-roll footage. Well, hmm, what song should I use in the background? And then it's like, it's already halfway edited. And so then once the finish line is in sight, then I just want to run <laughs> as fast as I can towards the finish line and get the video done. So, so as much as like the whole reason I went to a weekly schedule way back when was so I could give myself more time to edit a video throughout the week, but I still find myself usually end up making them throughout the course of one day, maybe one and a half days throughout the week <laughs> in the actual, you know, production of a video. But uh, 
then there's the planning. The planning, basically what I have found is what works best for me is to have a physical notebook. And I have like, a, I don't know what size it is. It's maybe like a, an eight inch by five inch notebook that it's like a sketchbook that I um, just carry with me all the time. And that has been the one thing that I have found really works for keeping ideas. And I tried using all kinds of digital tools. I tried using fancy whatever's for whatever reason for me this is the thing that works it's probably not the most efficient way to do it but for some reason it's what stuck so i'm going with it and basically i just constantly fill that notebook with ideas so if i know like oh uh, i want to whatever compare this lens to that lens i'll find a page and i'll write you know ef 24 to 105 versus rf 24 to 105 is it worth the price and then i might you know if i know what the hook's gonna be i'll write that if i know some of the basic info I want to hit, I'll write that. If I, you know, that's where I'll put my shot list if I have an idea. Sometimes I'll sketch out maybe an idea of what the thumbnail might look like. Uh, I also do, we'll do like a checklist for things. So like, you know, um, getting captions for the video and doing the end screen and making the thumbnail and taking the photo for the thumbnail because it's so easy to forget to actually take a real picture for a thumbnail instead of just using a random screenshot or whatever. And that kind of helps keep me on track. And oftentimes, especially at work, sometimes like during a lunch break or if I'm, you know, at like after school, just sort of around hanging out, you know, outside of school hours time, I'll usually have my notebook and I might go through and start fleshing out ideas there and just adding in a little more detail, a little more detail. And then usually, depending on the video, that might be where it ends and then I'll start it. Other times, I might start typing it into a notes app, just if it's like a little more detail and typing is really fast. And then from there, if it gets real specific, that's where I notice like, oh, this is turning into like a straight up script. So this is going to be a teleprompter video. And just sort of takes on whatever form it needs to in order to work. And that kind of just happens naturally. Um, so a lot of times throughout the week, it's more mostly the planning phase. And the weekends are more of the production phase. And then as I learned when I got into the world of YouTube, finishing the video is really only the start of the process because you still got to upload it. And then you got to do all the fun stuff. You got to make the thumbnail. You got to do the end screens. Um, I've been doing time markers lately. So because one of my least, fa one of my least favorite things is to have somebody say video starts at 123 or whatever. And I'm like, no, the video starts at zero 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 but i found that if you put in time markers to say you know this is the intro this is where i talk about this part this is the actual comparison it really does help and it, it is just kind of a nice thing people can click on whatever they're interested jump straight to that part of the video if it's not the whole thing but in order to make those you got to watch your video once it's all done you still gotta once you have the final version that you've already watched you know if it's an 11 minute video in addition to editing, you've probably at least watched it through two or three times. So that's 33 minutes. Plus then once it's done, like the final version that's uploaded, one more watch through to get those times. So that's another 11 minutes of just watching the video to get the times. So that, and that can sometimes, you know, that whole YouTube backend process can sometimes take like, you know, an hour or more depending on, you know, and they got tags and descriptions and the whole deal. So um, that's a lot of time that I don't know how many hours it is. It's definitely like time. Like I could easily be a, like a part-time job, <laughs> if not more. Um, 
yeah, it's it's just sort of a constant thing because it's also like my main hobby. So if I'm not working, I'm usually doing something related to it or I'm updating the website probably more than I should be doing that stuff, but I really like it. So that's that's kind of, you know, how that process works. Um, but this is great because when I, I'll make sure to, to have these questions on hand when I make my behind the scenes video so I can specifically show these things because I know it's sometimes easier to like literally see what it looks like. And it is just me doing everything on the videos, you know, Heather definitely helps with feedback. And usually before I upload it, I always show her the video so she can just offer some feedback, some input. It's nice, nice to see how another human reacts to it. Um, but you know, the production, the editing, the uploading, all that stuff is just, just me by myself. <laughs> it's not, not like anything super crazy behind the scenes. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's a fun process. I love one of my favorite things that I really love, which is probably why I end up sometimes with too much footage is when I'm doing B roll is to just start putting on, like if it's of a product and I need to just get all the shots of that product. So sometimes I'll either have the video I recorded playing or I'll have the script and I'll just know like, well, I talked about this. I talked about that and I'll make sure to get those specific shots. Like if I, you know, say, Oh, you can flip this switch and this thing happens and I want to get a shot of me flipping a switch and then the thing happening. And then other times stuff just makes sense. Like I know, you know, if I'm doing a product based video, I'm going to need just some glamour shots of like the whole product. So you set up lights in a creative way, but it's really fun to just like put on some music and then, you know, you're playing with lights, you're playing with camera angles and I can easily get carried away. And that time just flies at that point. Same with editing time, just like, you know, hours just melt away. So it's hard to say how long it takes, but I've really been loving like my just therapy music B-roll filming sessions. It's like, it's a ton of fun. So that's kind of what the basic production process looks like. Thanks again so much for that question. Uh, jumping back over to Twitter, <laughs> this uh, from Tech J Hammond. Tech Jammin. I don't know how to, I'm, I feel so bad. It's like the first day of school when I don't know the kid's name and I'm like, A.A. Ron. Uh, he asked, what are top three or five features for you that a camera must have in order for you to consider it? Oh, that's a good question. Are there any things you wish your current camera could do that it doesn't do right now? Awesome question. Okay. So it's kind of, I've made a couple videos. If you were to go on my channel and look up basically the video I made about the 6D Mark II, where I called it Canon's secret weapon, and then the EOS R, why I chose it over the 6D Mark II, like a year and a half later, those kind of answer those questions. But those, you know, even the EOS R video is like six months old at this point. So I can kind of narrow that down based on my specific needs. So these aren't what I think make a camera perfect. But for me, the first thing that pops into my head is an articulating screen, just because it's a huge lifesaver. It's it sounds like the smallest detail. And so many times when I talk about it in videos, I get comments from people that are like, I don't care about that. I don't do video and I'm not a vlogger and whatever. It's like, I, I understand. But if you've not used one, or you've not had one, you just don't understand how wonderful it is. It's completely life-changing to just have that display. Even if you're behind the camera, just if the camera's down low, you can still see the shot. If the camera's up high, you can see the shot. Of course, if you're in front of the camera, you can still see the shot. It's just like, Canon does it best. I think, I don't have a lot of experience with Panasonic cameras, but I think a lot of them like the GH5 have very similar, if not like the exact same style of articulating display that Canons do. 
Of course, there's Sony that has like the dumbest displays. And there's a lot of things I really love about Sony cameras, but the display, like they're weird little, like it kind of comes out a little bit. So it's, it's just like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, Sony. One day they'll figure it out. So for me, fully articulating LCD screen is an absolute must. And yeah, that I just, I can't have a camera without it. Uh, I'm also very much a full frame person when it comes to sensor. So I know that, you know, crop sensors are amazing and there's micro four thirds and there's, you know, super 35. There's all these sensor sizes that can deliver amazing results. But for me, I love the look of 35 millimeter or not 35. <laughs> I do love the look of 35 millimeter, but I love the look of full frame, especially a 35 millimeter lens on a full frame sensor. It's just, there's something about it that, you know, that, the depth of field, the fact that the lens is the uh, focal length, it's just one-to-one. -one. If it's a 35 millimeter lens, it is a 35 millimeter lens. There's no crop factor to deal with. I, I just love full frame. When I started getting into digital photography in like 2007, I, you know, I had a crop camera. I started with the Canon Rebel and it was just sort of always a dream of like, maybe one day I could actually have my very own full frame camera. And that was just like, for so many years, that was like the goal and the dream. And then once I got one, which was the original 6D, like maybe like five years ago, I just, I loved it so much. And the low light performance is good. It's just, there's, I just can't go back from full frame. So articulating display, full frame. Um, let's see, for me, dual, like good autofocus. And, you know, <laughs> I kind of like spoke ahead of myself and said dual pixel autofocus because I'm a Canon person especially with the EOS R, it's insane. Since I film most of my videos with a 1.4 aperture, that thing just locks right onto my eyeball and doesn't let go. And there's like no focus breathing or anything when I'm filming. It's shocking how good that autofocus is. So especially when you're a one-person crew like me, you know, sometimes, especially during B-roll shots, I'll, I'll, I'll do manual focus if I need like a very specific thing to happen or I want it to be at a specific speed. But beyond that, I mean, God, good autofocus with like face detect or eye detect is really key. Sony has made some real strides with their autofocus, but Canon is just like real hard to beat. <laughs> uh, and then Panasonic's over there, you know, trying their best, I guess. <laughs> um, sorry, I just kind of, I giggled uh, a little bit thinking of some people I know who really love their Panasonic cameras, but it's just that dang autofocus is like not something terrific. So yeah, great autofocus is definitely one of them. Um, let's see, because we're talking about must-have features. 4K is becoming more and more important, although I don't think it's totally required, but I am, I mean, it's really hard. Most of my footages on the EOS R is 1080 scaled up to 4K, so it can be a two-to-one aspect ratio. And it, it looks so friggin' good. It doesn't look like scaled up 1080 at all. Um, but some kind of 4K capabilities is like, maybe not a must have, but a super nice to have. Full frame 4K, of course, would be great. Um, but a must have, good battery life. Absolutely good battery life. Definitely a must have because you don't wanna, you don't wanna deal with like, that even really being a consideration. Like when you're just filming your stuff, you wanna know, I want to be good with this battery. If I'm going somewhere for a day, I know like maybe, you know, have the battery in the camera, backup battery or something, and that's it. I don't want to have to like freak out about, oh my God, my battery life is terrible and I have to deal with that. Let's see. Uh, so, you know, and then strong build. Like, I feel like most cameras are pretty comfortable. Some are better than others, but, you know, like 
there's always something every camera I've used in recent years there's something about I love the design of it you know there's something unique about every design that's sort of you're like oh this is really cool no matter what camera it is um but being really durable, maybe like a bit of weather weatherproofing. So even though you want to really take care of your equipment, you know that it can handle the elements. I remember the first time with that original 6D, I was in like a crazy rain slash snowstorm. And the camera was just like drenched and it was completely fine. And that like, I love that it was just, it was just the tool to get the job done it didn't need me to like take care of it. It was there to do the job that it was designed to do. So something with, uh, let's see, if we recap those features, what is it? It's good battery life, articulating LCD, uh, great autofocus, and you know, very durable, weatherproof. Those are probably my biggest things. I would go into stuff like image quality and all that, but like, what camera shoots bad image quality in 2020? Like, seriously, they're they're all amazing. It just comes down to a matter of personal preference. So for my workflow, those are. Those are the features that I really would use literally every single time that I pick up that camera. So those are my must-haves. And are there any things my current camera could do that it doesn't right now? Yes, two come to mind. I use the EOS R as my main camera. And <laughs> even though I made a video going like, this is why the cropped 4K can be a good thing, and it can be, the ability to have full-frame 4K on that thing would be great because it would just look so so good and you know i'm sure whatever the next eos r series model comes out it will have it but oh, i do wish I, I do like the 4k crop and there is a use for it but it'd be nice to have the option for it so you have a full frame then you have crop the other thing i would like that the eos r doesn't currently have there's two things actually the other one that i was gonna say first is some kind of internal like um, IBIS, like in-body stabilization. It does have an electronic stabilizer that works pretty well. But having a, you know, an, I don't know if it's optical, not optical, but a physical stabilizer like some of the Sony cameras have would be really, really cool just to help things out a lot. And then the other thing would be, which I've gotten, oh, oh, I just thought of two other things. <laughs> I was going to say uh, they got rid of where your thumb goes on the back of the camera. Now it's like a four-way directional pad. Whereas it used to be like this nice dial you could spin. And they basically just relocated that dial, but I wish it still had the dial there. And then the biggest the biggest inconvenience with the EOS R is the way you switch from photo to video. Because you have to press three buttons. You have to push like mode, info, select, or some, some three buttons to go back and forth every time. Whereas like every other Canon camera, pretty much for like 10 years that shot video, just has a little switch, like a physical switch that has a picture of a camera and a picture of a video camera. And you just flip that switch to the camera for photos, you flip it over to the video camera for video, and that is it. And I wish the R kept that, because it's just it's a great system. Like I don't I don't know why you, you would get rid of it. They still have that system on the 1D Mark III that was just announced recently. So clearly they're not like out to get rid of it forever because it's on their newest like flagship DSLR. So it kind of makes me wonder if that might make a comeback at some point. So those are my answers as far as camera goes. Um, okay, jumping in, <laughs> my next batch of, uh, I have sort of like four questions that weren't direct questions um, for this podcast, but are like every day or at least like five times a week, I would say, I encounter these questions. And so I wanted to address them. 
Um, a lot of people send them through as DMs on Instagram just as like because they have a question and they want an answer. And it's like I've, I've typed out the same answer so many times that it's just sort of worth going through. So one of the most commonly asked questions in my inbox is, since I talk about it all the time, 6D Mark II or EOSR, which should I get? Because for a long time, I had the 6D Mark II. I still have it. And I was just like, this is my favorite camera of all time. This is the best camera. And then I dipped my toe in the waters of the EOSR and kind of never looked back and loved the EOSR. So I have like videos on my channel that are like odes to each camera. <laughs> but I don't feel that that's hypocritical at all. But a lot of people ask the question because of the price difference. So they're both full frame cameras. They both get great picture quality. But there's about... There's about a $500 price difference between them. The price has gone down on both of them since I originally got it. So it's, they're both like reason, very reasonably priced cameras. The 60s probably typically in like a non-holiday season around maybe $1,200, $1,100. And the EOS R kind of hovers around 18 ish hundred. Um, so, you know, they're relatively like fairly priced. If you got the budget for it, 100%, I'd recommend the EOS R, hands down. Um, it, I'm blown away by how good the video looks on that thing every time I use it. Just the, uh, just the 1080p, and if it's all eye compression, it looks so good, and it scales up so well, and the focus is so good. It's a terrific camera. What I didn't expect when I got it was also how great the still photos would be because I didn't really care. I love the the photo performance of the 6D and I, I didn't think it would I needed anything else, but man, like the just the image quality, the clarity, the lack of noise, everything about the image quality of the EOS R is just mind-blowing. So if you have to choose one, that's the one I would go for. If you're on a budget, the 6D Mark II is still an, an incredible choice. Like it still looks really really good, but the EOS R kind of does outperform it in just about every way if it's within your budget. Having both of them, like I'm fortunate enough to be in that position uh, and I use the, the 6D as a second camera all the time and they play together very, very nicely and I love them both, but the R just, the R just kind of came in and <laughs> took over. It's so, it's so friggin' good. Um, the other question, this, this has popped up almost every day in the past week. For some reason, people keep going, um, where do you buy your cameras for cheap? What was the place that you recommend to get cheap cameras? Like a couple months ago, I made a video about Canon price watch. And I guess people remember I made a video, but they don't remember like what I was talking about in the video. So where to buy cameras, you know, anywhere's great. B and H has always been my go-to place to buy cameras. Uh, just because I trust them. They're super reliable. They had great return policies. Um, and for a long time, they didn't charge sales tax, but last year they had to start charging sales tax. So when you're buying something like an EOS R, no sales tax will save you hundreds of dollars. And so B&H just immediately was my always go-to place. But now they have sales tax. I dip a lot more into Amazon, but that's really where Canon Price Watch came in. I know it sounds sponsored. Even the video I made about them wasn't sponsored. I literally emailed them and was like, I love your website so much. Can I make a video about it? And they were like, yeah, whatever you want. <laughs> um, but yeah, Canon Price Watch is great because it literally watches the prices of Canon cameras and products and stuff. And so you can kind of see what the price history is, where the best current deals are, but they also have their street price option, which is basically 
uh, they'll show like sometimes you might see like the EOS R for sixteen hundred dollars. You're like, that seems like a really low price. And it says street price, and you click on it. It's a brand new camera from a Canon authorized reseller. No gray market, no shady things, not used or anything like that. Um, they'll answer any questions you have about that, and then if you're interested in actually purchasing it, they will connect you with an actual human being from the store and then you can finish the deal directly with the the seller um they have like a series of vendors that they work with to set up those deals i don't know how it works exactly but basically it comes down to canon has requirements for um, resellers that they can't at any time list their cameras under certain prices even if the the store or whatever is willing to or able to and so this kind of subverts that because they're not listing it publicly. It's just a private transaction. It's like walking into a store and saying, I really want this camera. And then the salesperson says like, okay, well, it's at this price, but I could give it to you for blah, blah, blah. It's sort of like that, except it's not a, it's just a one-time thing. Like this is the price. If you want it that price, you can get it here. Um, they did ask when I made the video not to reveal like the vendors. They'll tell you right away if you're asking like about the deal, like where the camera comes from. In all the times that I've used them, which has been about three or four times, including to buy my EOS R, um, it's always, I think, what, like, most of the time it's actually been from places I've used before on my own, and one time it wasn't, which was actually where the EOS R came from, but then that store became one of my new go-to stores because they were amazing, and I loved them. So um, definitely recommend if you're looking for the place to buy cameras. There's a lot of great places. I would, if you're in the... Let's see. Two answers. If you just want camera gear, camera stuff, B&H Photo, you know, is amazing. If you're looking specifically for something Canon related, lens, camera, whatever, Canon Price Watch, definitely the way to go to save the most money. Uh, next question. Oh, this isn't really a question. This is like a barrage of hate comments that I've been getting for like the last four months, which is, it's funny because when Heather like talks about her hate comments that she gets on her channel and she reads them to me, they're like, they're terrible. And, you know, and they're not super common, but when they come in, it's just like, wow, who would, why would somebody write this and put it on the internet, no less? And then when I get mine, I'm like, oh, look at this hate comment I got. It's like someone complaining about tech specs of camera batteries. So it's, <laughs> it's a different world. But, oh man, I made this video a few months ago where I compared the EOS R to the Sony a7 III. They're sort of, you know, they're they're basically like, they're different cameras in a lot of ways, but it's also, they're the equal cameras in those two companies' lineups. And in that video, I said that the a7 III battery life is terrible. And are you ready for some controversy? Because people freaked out about that. <laughs> and I don't know... I, I, I'm working on another video right now about why I like the a7 III because I wanted to explore something that wasn't a camera I'm used to. I wanted to really go in depth with it, not just for like a review or anything. And I'm addressing battery life. In my first video, I said that the battery life is terrible and that was probably too harsh, but that was coming off of me using the camera to film and photograph football games. And I'd been doing that for years with Canon cameras where I've never had to change a battery. Like whether it's video, photo, combination, whatever, it easily makes it through, no matter what, from all the way from like the Canon 50D to the EOS R and like everything in between over like, you know, eight years, I've never had any issues with Canon battery life at a football game, which is usually about three hours, very active shooting. 
which sounds terrible to say. Um, and with the Sony a7 III, when I was doing football games, I could like literally, it felt like, watch the battery drain. Like every time I looked at it, it was less and less and less to the point where I, the camera didn't make it all the way through a game. And so that to me was pretty, well, this one camera is really good battery life, so the camera doesn't. And that was about as scientific as I got with it, but people got really, really upset saying like, no, like it's so much better and the battery's bigger and blah, blah, blah. So I'm going to settle this once and for all. This, and this is the hot controversy that you clearly came for for this podcast, camera battery talk. You know, it's what all the kids are into these days. <laughs> But it, realistically, if you're looking between these two cameras and battery life, they both have good battery life. Recently, I've been doing like literal side-by-side -side testing between the two, and I have found that the A7 III drains about 10% faster than the EOS R. I don't know why, it just does. In general, though, if you're talking about using the cameras for an entire day or something, it doesn't really make a difference. It you know, they, they typically seem to last as long as the other. I don't know what was going on when I was filming the games and fo taking photos of the games where the battery was just dying. Maybe there was a setting of, I'm not super familiar with Sony, so maybe I had something on in the background that was draining battery. I don't know. But the tricky part of that is that the A7 III has a way bigger battery. Like, I forget what the exact numbers are, but it's significantly larger in terms of capacity than the EOS R. And that's confusing that it wouldn't be significantly longer and that the R is a longer lasting battery period. Every single time I've tested them, the R has won um, by about 10%, if not more. And all I can think of is that it just has to do with, um, it just has to do with the fact that Sony puts so much into their cameras. <laughs> you know, you do have IBIS and you do have, you know, this, I don't know how they manage power, but Sony cameras have a, a crazy amount of features just going all the time. Clearly, that must take a lot of power. And they produce great image quality. Whatever they're doing, it's great, but it clearly consumes a lot of power to make it happen. Canon, maybe because they've been doing this a little longer, just, ha you know, they manage the power a little more efficiently. Whatever, it's, <laughs> we don't need to get too far into camera batteries. Um, but the other thing is, and this is probably where people get upset, is, I feel like when it comes to battery life, a lot of Sony users, it's like they realized they were in an abusive relationship. <laughs> if, you're in a, if you're in an abusive relationship, sometimes you don't realize it until it's too late or till you're out of it. If you have been unfortunate to be in that situation or you know anyone who has, you've kind of seen that probably. And I sort of feel like that, like the Sony A7S II has such terrible battery life that it literally just comes with two batteries because Sony said, screw it. The battery life, this is an amazing camera. Battery life sucks, <laughs> but uh, we're just going to give you two batteries and then it's fine. <laughs> and that, that's kind of the world that Sony users were living in for a long time. And then the A7 III showed up where not only did Sony throw in like every feature they could think of at the time, but they also threw in this like, you know, more than double sized battery in terms of capacity, which is super duper capable. And so not only is it, it's good battery life objectively, but if you'd been used to Sony battery life before that and then you got this, yes, you are going to think that like, this is the best battery life I've ever used. This camera's amazing. And then if I show up and I go like, the battery life's terrible, you're going to be like, this guy sucks and he doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, and it's probably a combination of the two <laughs> um, where 
Canon battery life still is better, but not in any real meaningful way. So, you know, uh, for all intents and purposes, you could say they have equal battery life. <laughs> but, oh, and I bring this up and go on the battery life tangent because I don't, I don't get, I'm fortunate enough that I don't get a lot of negative, hateful comments on my channel. They do exist, but the amount of negativity brought out by this battery controversy is insane. And not even that, but there's like threads of comments on the video where, you know, it's like 13, 20 responses, people talking to each other, people yelling at me. Someone shows up six months later and is like, yeah, you're an idiot. What are you talking? It's like, whoa, this is crazy. <laughs> That's probably the video I've like deleted the most comments on because they're like genuinely like mean and unnecessarily like attacking. So yeesh, battery life, the hot controversy. Uh, up next, the question I've been dealing, not dealing with, but getting a lot is, has to do with music licensing. Epidemic versus Artlist versus something else. I did make a video on Epidemic and Artlist, um, which seems to be helpful to a lot of people. But here's the very quick rundown if you're looking for royalty-free music. If you're making videos, if you're making your own content, you do need to be using royalty-free music, just period. It'd be great if you could just use your favorite artist's songs, um, but you can't especially if you're monetizing anything, you don't even want to go down that rabbit hole, just stick to royalty-free stuff. Or of course, original music. You make your own songs, they're yours, you own them. And so luckily, royalty-free music has gotten really good in the past few years and really affordable too. It used to be, I remember, you know, if you wanted to license one song, it would be like $300 for just a little indie creator like myself. If you were an actual production company, could be a totally different, way more expensive story. And now royalty-free music, the music itself is legitimately just good music. It doesn't sound like royalty-free music and the pricing is way better. So your best resource, if you need royalty-free music is to just use the YouTube creator library or the audio library. It's in Creator Studio. They basically aggregate royalty-free music from a bunch of terrific places around the internet, and then they put it all in one spot. You can search by mood, genre, length, whatever, and just click download. It's good to go. You're, you know, that's a great resource, and there's so many songs there. Beyond that, I would recommend something like Epidemic or Artlist, uh, and the difference between the two has to do with uh, price structure and licensing. Both are terrific. They just serve different needs. I... Um, I use both. I, a huge chunk of my channel's income every month comes from Artlist affiliate links because people are awesome and signing up through them. And then I've also, the only like paid sponsored video I've ever done on my channel is for Epidemic Sound. So again, I don't feel that that's hypocritical because I literally use both. Most of my videos have music from both of those sites in them because it's just, it's just different needs. So Artlist is in terms of price, they come out to about the same monthly price, uh, which is between $15, $16 for like a standard individual creator like myself, like maybe you are. Um, the difference is though, Artlist requires you to pay annually. So it's one upfront, like $200, there you go. Um, and then Epidemic, you can, you can actually pay monthly. So that's, you know, that's important to take into account. Uh, the other issue is licensing. Artlist has a, a license that's good in perpetuity. So once you sign up, you do pay that $200. You're in it for a year. Um, but if you cancel after that year and you don't renew it, any music that you downloaded, even if it's like every song on their site, 
you can still use for as long as you want in any way. And there's no limit to how you use artless music. It can be in a major Hollywood blockbuster. It can be on your vlog. It can be in a commercial, anything. You can just use it wherever. Um, so you don't have to even think about it. It's great if you're doing client work and you don't know where they're going to share it, how it's going to work. Like Artlist, just, it's just a one and done situation. They're always adding new music to their library. I would say that in general, their songs kind of have like a more um, like indie hipstery vibe, but luckily like I like that. So it worked out. And then Epidemic, their licensing is tied specifically to you uh, or the person who, you know, purchases the license if it's a business in some cases. And basically what that means is um, like if you have an Epidemic subscription, it's tied to your channel. You can use all the songs you want on your channel, but if you use a song somewhere else, then they're going to, um, they can claim it on that. So you have to be very careful with how you use the music. And then it also means that if you cancel your Epidemic account, they don't let you uh, keep using the music. So anything you made with an acting account, with an active account is good. Um, but beyond that, if it's an inactive, then you can't keep using the music, which totally makes sense. Like you're not paying for the service. Why could you keep going and downloading music? Um, beyond that, um, Epidemic does have a way larger library. Uh, it's like, it's stupidly huge how big their their thing is. Um, and yeah, that's, I mean, that's really a big difference. If you, if you want, I'll, in the notes for this show, I'll put, uh, I'll put a link, I'll put my affiliate links, why not, to both of the sites. Um, if you use my link, now it sounds like a sales pitch. If you use my link for Artlist, you get two extra months free. So you get 14 months instead of 12. And if you use mine for Epidemic, you can get um, a 30-day free trial. So they're both great. One is not better than the other. They are just different tools for different needs, different styles, all that stuff. So that's uh, where I would say about Epidemic versus Artlist. And, oh, and then I had one last question, <laughs> uh, which is actually from one of my students today, which is kind of adorable. And I don't really talk about my YouTube channel or anything in class unless it's hyper relevant. But he asked, uh, how do you come up with your ideas for your videos? And basically, I kind of talked about that earlier, but it's, it's, it's finding that balance between not just the niche, like what does the audience want, but what do I also want? And that's why when it comes to developing your niche, it's really important to find something that is sustainable. And for me, kind of like I talked about cameras and stuff, is a pretty saturated niche, or it feels that way sometimes. But those are the things for like most of my life, like literally since four or five years old, cameras, making videos, like that kind of stuff. I can talk about that all day. Like, you know, we had a 10 minute discussion just now about freaking batteries. So that's something that for whatever reason, it's just, I love it. I love every part of it. And I can just go on and on and on about it. So if you're looking for sustainability, for me, that just made sense. There were other things that might be a little more effective or, uh, you know, gain traction more quickly, but they're not something that I would want to or even maybe could continuously make videos about. And so to come up with ideas for that, it just goes back to that notebook. And then I just kind of find what I'm most excited about and what I think the audience will be most excited about. And if there's any way to connect it to something that's happening currently, then I do that. Like I did a, a holiday gift guide video, which lots of people do. That's not an original idea, but for like four or five months, I'd had a video 
note idea that I wanted to do like my favorite camera gear under $50. And I was just sort of collecting like, what is my favorite pieces of gear that's not super expensive. And then by the time like I wanted to make the video, it was like November and I was like, oh, this would be great. I should make this video now. And then it can be like great little like inexpensive video related holiday gift guide. So it's just sort of those things. What do you want to make? What does the audience want to make? Is it relevant to anything that's going on in the bigger picture? And then try to make try to make that thing. And you know, finding that balance is very, very key to to make it sustainable. So that's that's basically like the approach that I typically take with that. That royalty-free music means that it's time to talk about gear of the week as we wrap up this show. So right now, God, as you know, I'm recording this on the Roadcaster Pro because I talk about it like a thousand times because I love it. But one of the things, this has been an issue with guitar gear. I've played guitar for a long time. My guitar amps have this problem is dust getting into the gear. And especially on audio gear, when you raise and lower levels, kind of like that. If there's dust in the lever or in the switch or in the pot or whatever, it can make this really terrible grinding, fuzzy, distorted noise. And it, it's really bad if you're doing anything audio related. So keeping dust out of audio products is important. There's a company based in England, but they ship all over called Deck Saver. And they basically specialize in dust and like polycarbonate dust covers for audio and DJ gear. And they sent me a, a cover for the Roadcaster Pro that's like custom molded to the Roadcaster. They didn't ask me to like talk about it or promote it or anything. There's no no secret sales pitch here. They just sent it and said like, check it out, see if you like it or not. And it's so cool. I mean, it's I'm literally talking about a piece of plastic right now, but it not only protects it from bumps and things, you know, hitting it, falling on it, whatever, but it just keeps all the dust out so that way I don't have to worry about the quality of sound being negatively affected as time goes on with this tool that I use all the time and rely on heavily. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes for this uh, to Decksaver, just so you can check them out. They also make covers for like DJ gear, synthesizers, all kinds of audio gear. The covers are super strong, like clear plastic, and they're custom molded to whatever specific piece of gear you buy it for. They're also really reasonably priced. It's not like insanely expensive or anything. And the people who run the company are like ultra nice helpful they're just kind of audio nerds that want to protect their stuff so i highly recommend them put a link um again not sponsored or anything but just one of my favorite new things that i'm like so excited i'm excited to end the podcast literally so i can put the cover back on because it like feels so nice it looks so nice so that's a that's a really dorky thing that's embarrassing anyway if you have any other questions or comments or concerns or anything like that uh, feel free to to reach out to me at Sodor and Tom on all the things or at the YouTube channel or email, any of that stuff. And of course, you can always go to anchor.fm slash enthusiasm and leave a voice message. And I would love to have your voice be a part of a future episode. So thanks so much, as always, for spending your time with me. And I will see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.